0: And then our second reading is in Matthew 21. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a winepress in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But the tenants saw the son. They said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants. He will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, "'Have you never read in the Scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvellous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit.'" He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parable, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd, because the people held that he was a prophet. This is God's word.
1: Let's pray, though, one more time, we've had the reading, and uh, then we'll have a look together at this. Father, if we've been here for the last few weeks, we're used to the blunt words of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the one who is perfect love uh, is not afraid to bluntly warn. So we pray we'd hear that rightly this evening, rightly as it's meant for us. So give us good understanding, give us hearts that are willing to change before your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I rang a friend uh, in the week, Uh, he picked the phone up and apologised straight away, I'm terribly sorry, this probably isn't a very good time, Uh, this call may not go so well. I said, oh, what's going on? And then I heard in the background, no, from his 11-year-old son, so probably not quite as deep as that, but um, no, or something like that, no, you are so unfair. Oh dear, I said to my friend, what deeply unreasonable aspect of fatherhood Have you imposed unreasonably upon your child this time? About an hour ago, I told him he needed a shower. (laughs) Ah, yes. Asking your son to shower more than once a year. You are an unreasonable father. (laughs) I hate you, comes down the line. Okay, uh, I think, um, Shall I call you back? Uh, You are the worst father in the world. Yeah, that might be best. Speak to you later. And uh, we left it at that. Now, every child goes through those sort of tantrums. You did it when you were a child, probably. It may not have been a shower. You may have been the, uh, the golden girl, the cleanest girl in the neighbourhood. Um, and notice I say girl, not boy. The, um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we all have those sort of tantrums, and it's okay. An 11-year-old, uh, generally... Parents are going to be patient with an 11-year-old. And yet there's still some sort of discipline. I rang him up a little bit later. Uh, all all quiet now. Yes. Gone to bed. Yes. I sent him to bed. He had no screens. That's it. He's lost his computer. He's lost DVDs for a week. Silly boy. But he has come down and apologised. Well, there we go. Children, Who'd be one? Um, And it's fine. I mean, he's an 11-year-old. There's patience. But in one sense, there's an end to patience as well. An hour of, no, you're the worst parent in the world ever. Well, probably not uh, for saying you need to wash. It's quite good for you sometimes. There's a sense to that element here in this story that Jesus tells. He tells it to emphasize the patience of God. With people who are stubbornly rebellious, God is wonderfully patient, but there is a day when patience ends. And we want that. We want that in this world. We want there to be justice and not just open ended patience. There's got to be a reckoning at some point. And Jesus is saying that the Lord is very patient, but that time does end. Now, just to orientate ourselves a little bit, this is uh, one of the only three parables that appears in all of the uh, synoptic gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, along with the mustard seed and the parable of the soils. Uh, They all appear in slightly different settings. Uh, If you've been here, we know I said, um, suggested there's a section, chapter 21, verse 23, to the end of chapter 22, which is very intense in Matthew's gospel. It's real conflict between him, Jesus Christ, and uh, the religious leaders of the day. Not people in general, but the religious leaders, the uh, the spiritual elites as they saw themselves. the last week of Jesus' life, and so the conflict is at its most intense. So he gives us some of the parables here that Jesus, uh, um, that get recorded in the other gospels in different places. So next week we'll have the parable of the banquet in Luke. That's quite a jolly, nice setting. I take it Jesus told the, 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 uh, that parable earlier on in his ministry. But when it tells it in the last week of his life, conflict is intense. So the parables just a little more intense, have a bit more edge to them at this stage. Tangentially, note that Jesus retells some stories again in different settings. That is biblical and godly and wise. So if you hear me reuse an illustration, just being like Jesus, that's all it is, okay? Just so we notice that. Um, now, the, the only other thing we need to know but to make sure we don't misunderstand this is who, who is this audience? Chapter 45 of our reading, who is Jesus telling this story against? Chapter, uh, excuse me, verse 45, chapter 21, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. So it would be a mistake to jump right into this and say, this is you and this is me. Although we'll hear some echoes of that. Primarily, this whole series of parables is against the religious authorities of Jesus' day. And we need to know that, otherwise we'll get it a bit wrong uh, a little later on. Although there'll be those two little applications. Okay, let's break it uh, into three. Uh, it's a more complicated parable. Uh, that is, there are more details. It's not complicated, really. It's very simple. But there are more details than some of the parables Jesus tells. But still, fundamentally, there's a God figure. There's a negative example to avoid. There's a positive example to copy. Okay. There's the, the landowner. He's been like God, the Father. Uh, a negative example, don't be like the tenants. That is, don't be like the religious leaders over Israel, the vineyard. Rather, be like the latter group, who bear fruit. Okay? So we'll look at those three. So first then, the owner is generous and patient with rebellion. The owner is generous and patient with rebellion. So verse 33. Uh, Listen to another parable, says Jesus. There was a landowner, and he's a very generous landowner. Now we had Isaiah 5 read, Becca kindly read that for us. As soon as Jesus starts to tell this story, the religious guy, most people, mean the people in the street are thinking, know well, we know we know this one. This is Isaiah, isn't it? the vineyard that God planted, And he's like, "Oh yeah, we know this one well, it's Jesus, you know plagiarist Jesus, what are you doing? Copying? okay, where is he going to go with this story?" But they'll be familiar with the background. There was a landowner. What did he do? Well, very kindly, he planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it. He dug a wine press in it and he built a watchtower. He's active. But the emphasis here is upon his generosity. Here's a bloke, uh, he's obviously got some land and he's gonna plant a vineyard and then leave and he knows that and he's gonna let it out to some tenants. But he's very generous by the standards of the day. He put a wall around a vineyard. Now you may not have in your mind a wall as the height of generosity. But still if you go to Israel today, plenty of vineyards, do they have walls around them? They do not. There'd just be some bushes marking out the territory. Walls keep out animals that would eat your grapes. So this is extravagant vineyard construction. What else does he do? He digs a wine press in it. That really is top of the range. Do any of you have a wine press at home? You do not. Well, you've got your feet. You could crush some grapes. I guess you could do that in the bath. Um... That's what it is, come on. But even in the context of the time, no one had a wine press. Oh, there'd be one in the village and a number of you know, vineyards would go and use the one in the village, but no one had their own wine press. And a watchtower, this is, this is luxury that he's providing for the tenants. You can think of it in these terms. Uh, in the 21st century, not many of us probably are renting a vineyard, uh, if you are. I've got some holiday to spare. Let me know uh, if it's in Tuscany or somewhere like that. That'll be fine. But um, most of us, I take it, are probably renting some property here in London. I don't take it, but many of us have extravagantly generous landlords. Not many. For many, you know, we, you, you arrange your deal, whatever it is—a thousand pounds rent for a two-bedroom flat—and uh, you move it. Oh, not quite as much furniture as I thought. One bed, half a sofa. Can we have a chair? Please, a table, just a few. You know, the, the mattress on this bed it has got more wildlife in it than London Zoo. Can we have a bit more, please? This is, uh, you know, often it works a little bit like, but, but not this landlord. This landlord is generous. So it's a bit like you sign your tenancy agreement, £1,000, two bedroom flats, whatever it is, and then a month later you move in and he's done a few upgrades and painted everything, new bathroom. Jacuzzi, ooh, Uh, those sort of jets in the bath, lounge, nice, 42-inch TV with, uh, you know, sky package thrown in. Wow, generous, wasn't expecting that, that sort of landlord. That's what Jesus is emphasising, as Isaiah did, with this story. The Lord was very, very generous in the world he made. He was very generous in what he provided for his people. Israel, as they were in the Old Testament. And he's not just a, a sort of property developer that makes something nice and then disappears. Of course, he's personally involved in it. So he is the one who plants, he puts, he digs, he builds. He cares. As it was expressed in Isaiah, I will sing for the one that I love. Again, not many of our landlords will come into the flat and say, how is it? I'm sorry, just to give you one moment, I'm just going to sing to my flat. I just, you know, personally involved. It affects him deeply. I love this vineyard, my people, Israel. And so we're told that he rents out the vineyard to some tenants, some tenant farmers, and then goes away on a journey. That is, in the context of the parable, there was the nation of Israel, and God put over them religious leaders, Pharisees, uh, the senior elders, the religious elite, the ones that are having a discussion with Jesus throughout these couple of chapters. Okay, so uh, that's it. They've got a generous uh, landlord. But then what's emphasized, verse 34 onwards, is his patience. So verse 34, when the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. Yes, that's right. Israel was meant to be fruitful as a nation. That is meant to show the obedience of faith, godliness. But there's no fruit. Because what happens, verse 35, in the story, the tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, stoned a third. I think it's sensible in the context of the parable to uh, view this as Jesus describing the Old Testament prophets who were sent to preach to the people and the leaders of Israel, turn back to the Lord, turn back to the Lord, turn back to the Lord. You need to show the obedience of faith. You need to follow him rather than walking away from him. And they were beaten, killed, stoned. Now verse 36 is more striking then he, the landlord, sent other servants to them, more than the first time. I read a couple of commentaries this week on commented on this particular uh, on this particular verse. Um, obviously, at this point, this is a ridiculous story. No landlord would have done that. He sends some servants; they get killed. You wouldn't send more. And verse 20, or 36, even more than he'd sent in the original round. He just wouldn't do that. It's ridiculous. That's the point. Jesus is saying, here is extravagant patience. No human would do that. But he just gives more time, more opportunity for the tenants to return, to do the right thing. Very patient Uh, One or you may have heard this before, but a couple of years ago, when, um, when uh, my wife and I married, 15 years ago, Kerry and I married, and uh, we bought a flat in southwest London when you could do so without being a millionaire. Um, and... Uh, we lived there for a couple of years, and it was our marital home, and we did lots to it. It was a knackered old thing, and we put in new windows. We did crazy, exciting things like that, and uh, recarpeted and painted everything. It was a complete refit job uh, from a shell. Uh, great. Uh, we lived there for a couple of years, and haven't lived there since, but uh, we rented out. Uh, about two years ago, we needed a bit of... Um, titivating, tidying up a little bit, so it took a couple of days, painted all the, all the rooms, you know, cleaned it all up, uh, some new carpet went down again, uh, put in some fitted wardrobes, fitted wardrobes, ooh, uh, in the bedroom, you know, nice, in the garden, redid the fence, new fencing panels, creosoted, you know, chopped everything back, a little bit of horticulture, you know, I didn't make cockerels on the hedges, but you know, it looked good, it looked good, you know, spent a couple of days doing that, great. Uh, Oh, yeah, this flat. I loved living here. This was at home, wasn't it? Yes, those are the days, yes. Um, But he was great. I mean, did a good job. All tied it up. New tenants moved in. Three lads. um, Okay, three is a bit many for the flat. But okay, fellas, in you go. You can just about squeeze in. Um, Went in six weeks later. How's it doing? Trashed. I mean, really bad. Fitted wardrobes, Gone. Pulled off the wall so a telly could be there in its place. Just holes drilled in the wall for wires to run round. I didn't know what they were all doing. The kitchen, great little lumps of plaster taken out of the wall in drunken games of aggressive darts. Trashed. Carpets. Ruined. Staircase. Broken. I went in, looked around. I just sat on the chair, because we provided them. Sat on the chair. Head in hands. What have I done? Why did I let it out to three 22-year-old Cambridge graduates? What was I playing at? Um, what? No, they that was true. But it's neither here nor there. Three fellas. What, what, they have trashed it. I went, they weren't there. I went home, wrote a letter, get out. Get out. Oh, you know, can't we talk about this? No. No, we're beyond talking. Get out. Got out. Your deposit is mine. Doesn't cover the damage, but get out. Obviously, you don't put up with that. It was trashed. There's a point when you're beyond talking. But here, God doesn't get to that point. That's the stupid thing, the crazy thing in this story. Verse 36, he sends more servants. And then, of course, you get even beyond that, verse 37. Verse 37, last of all, he sent his son to them. Oh, they'll respect my son, he said. God is not daft in sending his son, but it is an expression of his love and patience. Here's another chance. What will you do? I said to my tenants, get out. What I didn't do was say, well, I know they've been unreasonable, but why don't I send my son to along to go and negotiate with them? I didn't do that. I'm not putting him in harm's way. Not with those lads. No way. Very, very patient. This is the patience, the exceptional patience of God being described here. As I put it, one of those who was beaten, one of those who's rejected, Isaiah 65 verse one, the Lord says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. It's a good picture, isn't it? The Lord says, all day long I stand there. No one stands there for a day saying, but the Lord does. He's very patient, saying to people, come back to me. So there's the first, the longest thing. The owner is generous and patient with rebellion. Secondly, then let's look at the tenants. Uh, secondly, the tenants. The tenants will be judged for killing the son. Now, verses 38 and 39 are staggering. When the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him and killed him very abrupt. Now to my mind, this is staggering for at least a couple of reasons. One, I don't care how many times you've heard this parable. Isn't it extraordinary that Jesus tells it? He's speaking to a group of people who hate him, saying, you have rejected the Lord and done a disgraceful job. And let me tell you how this ends. You will kill me. That's what's going to happen. And then I'll rise again. It's extraordinary that he looks in the face and predicts his own death. Please don't ever just, you can't say Jesus, nice teacher, supernatural stuff. He says, I'm going to die and rise again. It's intrinsic to his teaching. You can't pull that out. Staggering that he predicts it here. But I guess the, the, the main point in this little section, the staggering thing really is the rebellion, the wickedness. The tenant said, "This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and take his inheritance. I guess they're working on the basis. The dad hasn't come, he's got to be dead. The son's come in his place. I presumably it's that like working like that. But the, the, uh, their motive is revealed. Why do they reject the son? They want his inheritance. Why did that first audience, the religious teachers, reject Jesus? Ah, I'm not interested. Because they wanted their position. They wanted the prestige of ruling over Israel. They didn't want God. They didn't want to be accountable to him. And I guess the derivative application from that Why now still do people reject Jesus Christ? Because we want life in this world, but we don't want to be accountable to him. We'll have the gifts, just not the giver. We'll have the fruit, we don't want the farmer. We'll have the fun of the cosmos, not the creator. We want the stuff, just not him. Or if he's there, I don't mind, as long as he shuts up and keeps in his own box, leaves me alone. Now that's still prevalent, isn't it? It's a timeless attitude. Some of us, I guess, are, some people are aggressive about it. They're so a bit like the eleven-year-old boy. I hate you! You're the worst father ever. Some, but most people in twenty-first century, of course, not many of that vocal. They'll just say, "I'm not listening." Is there a God? I don't know. Or i, I just don't want to think about it. I'm just covering my ears. But I'm not listening. I don't care what people say. I don't wanna know because I, I don't want to be accountable. You know, the little story of uh, the two travellers passing through a desert. Uh, going through a desert, they've miscalculated their food and their drink and they're exhausted. They're at a point of collapsing, tired, hungry, about to die. They turn a corner, I don't know how you do that in a desert, but they turn a corner and um, uh, they come to a little valley uh, and there's a stream going through it and they oh, collapse into the stream, put their heads in <laughs> drink up all the water <laughs> uh, refresh themselves and they look around and wow, look at this place. There's all these cultivated fruit trees and there's pears and pineapples and kumquats and pomegranates. That's the great biblical fruit, isn't it? If you ever read the Book of One Kings, there's pomegranates everywhere. It's very exciting. Um, uh, Wow, and oh, look, coconuts. And Oh, someone's taken the top off. Oh, brilliant. Look, steak frying on a barbecue. Brilliant. This is the place. And the first traveler says, oh, behold the wonders of Mother Nature running free. And the second one says, oh, you idiot. This isn't about We've got to find a farmer. We've got to find the man who's made all this stuff. Precisely the same situation. Precisely the same evidence. Two different outcomes. Why? Well, they've already made up their mind what they think. And they come to the evidence and reach the conclusions they want. And that's true in the 21st century. And so Jesus would warn here if you if you reject me, why are you doing so? For many it's, you just want the inheritance. You just want God's stuff, the pleasures of being in his world, and there are many, but without being accountable to him. And you never really thought about why that is. That's his warning. Verse 40, Jesus is a good storyteller, of course. So uh, he says to them, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And those listening in, the, uh, the teachers, the rulers say, well, he'll, verse 41, he'll bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. He'll rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Oh, come on, it's obvious what will happen, they say. He'll judge them. He'll kick them out. Of course he'll do that. yes. In verse 42, Jesus says, okay, let's think about that. Have you never read Psalm 118? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done it. It's marvelous in our eyes. The scene has shifted. No longer tenant farmers looking after a vineyard, but builders building God's house. But it's the same idea, looking after God's people. And it's a bit different in the first century, of course. You'd go to the quarry. You don't go to B&Q or, or Dewson's and get your sort of pallet of bricks that are all nicely formed. You go to the quarry and say, oh, what stones are around? Well, that one's a load of old rubbish. These stones, that's what we need. Whack them on the back of a camel, off we go. Um, and they miss the most important one, the capstone, the one that holds the building together, the keystone on a bridge. It's that sort of principle. And Jesus says, You remember Psalm 118? That was Israel. Israel was the feeble little nation that God rose, exalted up, that became the most important in the world. And Jesus says, You know what? Psalm 118 is me. You'll reject me, but I'll be exalted. If you are any doubt about that, Acts 4 spells it out very clearly. Peter picks, teaches us Psalm 118 in Acts 4 and says, the builders, they're the rulers and elders. The, uh, the rejection of the stone, that's the crucifixion. And the, uh, the exalting, the raising up of the stone, that's the resurrection. That's what's going on. That's the truth of this. But here, I guess you and I need to take away, don't be surprised that people reject Jesus Christ. Because they don't want to be accountable to him, and if you wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian, I, well, there are plenty of reasons why that may be. But Jesus says, D- "Is that it? You just don't want to be? You don't want to change?" And they will be judged. Verse forty-one: the owner will bring those wretches to a wretched end. That will happen. Yeah, if an 11 year old is uh, nasty to his dad, is deeply unreasonable, you know, the dad is patient, but eventually says, oh, look, just go to bed and you've lost your screens for a week. For an 11 year old, that's, you know, you know, that's traumatic. But it's fine, you know. If the son is 21 years old and says to his parents, I want you dead. I hate you and mistreats his siblings in the house. That's a different order of things, isn't it? And the dad says, get out. Not when you're treating your mother like that. Not when you're abusing your sisters like that. Get out. Get out. Oh, There is a difference. So we're warned here, the tenants, they will be judged for killing the son. The Lord is very patient but there is a time when his patience ends, which is a good thing, because we want there to be justice. So the tenants will be judged for their killing of the son. Third and last, the vineyard will be given to a fruitful people. It'll be given to a fruitful people. Now you get the original application, I guess, to the, to the, uh, the, the leaders then. It comes in verses 41 and 43. Uh, what will happen? He'll, verse 41, he'll bring those wretches to a wretched ends and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants will give him a share of the crop at harvest time. And Jesus says, yes, quite right, verse 43. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you, religious leaders, and given to a people who will produce its fruit. So Jesus says, my death and resurrection changes everything. No longer will my people, my vineyard be the nation of Israel ruled over by the religious elite, Pharisees, chief priests, elders, No, it's going to be ripped away from you and my people, my vineyard will become the church with Jews and Gentiles and Greeks and barbarians and Scots and English and Americans and Australians and blah, blah, blah. Be given to them, people who trust in me and they'll bear fruit, it will grow. And that's fundamentally what Jesus is describing here. You see it in history, uh, classically, the year AD 70, Jerusalem is invaded by the Romans, the city is destroyed, the temple destroyed, the whole class of priests is out of a job, they're gone. They're gone. But even more significantly, it happens at his death and resurrection. There's a change from one group of people to the new people, the church. That's what he's describing. So that's what the, the, I guess the original application, but for you and for me, verse 44 is a fairly timeless verse. So verse 43, Jesus says, I say to you, people in front of me, religious elders, verse 44, this is for anyone. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. It's literally the one who, so it applies to one and all. Two pictures, I think they're basically saying the same thing. Uh, you've got a capstone on a roof of a house. Of course, first century, they all used to walk upon their houses, It's you know roof terraces, as it were, flat roofs. And you have the capstone. The two things could go wrong. You could come up to it, trip over it, woo, and fall and be broken in pieces. Or you could be walking beneath it, it falls upon your head and, and crushes you. Two pictures, they're both the same point. You can't reject Jesus forever. There's a time when patience runs out. a Timeless comment for you and for me, and essentially, the question it leaves us with, verse 44, is How will you respond to Jesus? And there are some timeless elements to this parable. God is very generous in the world He creates, naturally, instinctively, all of us rebel against that. We don't want Him, we don't want to be accountable to Him, we don't bear fruit for Him. But Jesus says, my death and resurrection will come. And now there is a new time of patience. It is now as if God says, I hold out my hands all day long to a stubborn and obstinate people. What will you do with my son? And there are two choices for you and for me. Uh, I guess the first is, you either let the stone fall upon you and crush you. Or secondly, you build your life upon it. Him, Jesus Christ. Well, it's a sober warning from Jesus. God is very patient. But if you don't put your trust in him, you'll die. We'll all die at some point. But if you haven't done it before, you die. Or Jesus returns. You'll be crushed by him. There's patience, but it ends. If you're not a Christian, But by contrast, if you build your life upon Jesus, his patience never ends. Because we make mistakes, we fall, we stumble, but we're forgiven. Do you see the difference? You don't trust Jesus, his patience ends, and there's a time when Jesus returns and judges this world. If we build our lives upon him, there's patience with all our mistakes. It's very different if you've built your life upon the cornerstone rather than have it fall upon you. Uh, We read a little story in our house this week, a sweet story, about a boy who grew up in a red brick house. Uh, As a young boy, he grew up uh, with his family, mum, dad, uh, and siblings. He grew up in this red brick house, and lots of happy memories of uh, riding his bicycle and walks in the woods nearby the house, and going on holiday together. He had a very happy childhood. He got to his teenage years and went off the rails a little bit, a little bit druggy, and uh, uh, a little too much drink. But the drugs was the main problem because he used to steal to feed the habit. Uh, and that went on for a little, pine, little time. He got in trouble with a dealer uh, until he really owed a significant sum of money. And so he stole it from his parents. He could go onto their computer. He accessed their accounts. They weren't particularly careful. He, nicked, he emptied them out and ran. And ran overseas. He got into trouble overseas. Spent all the money got in prison for a a drug dealing in another country. Five years later, gets back to the UK. He's living rough on the streets and thinks to himself, can I go back to mum and dad? I don't know. He writes them a letter and says, mum and dad, I'm going to come back and visit sometime this year to the old brick red house. Uh, And if you want to see me, can you put a handkerchief in my bedroom window, a white hanky, just hanging from the curtain rail? Then I'll know you want to see me. If it's not there, it's okay. I get it. He journeys back to the uh, village where he grew up. He gets to the end of the road and sits there on the pavement for a while, thinking, I don't know, what's going to happen? I don't know. Eventually, he wanders up the road, turns the corner and sees his old red brick house. Apart from it's not an old red brick house anymore because it's covered in white. And out of every window, there are white towels hanging. And in the attic, they've opened the windows and covered the whole roof of the house in white sheets. There's nothing red anymore, it's just white. And he goes up to the open front door and walks in. Because if you're a Christian, there's always patience. There's always forgiveness, not begrudging, but enormous if you build your life upon him. But don't wait forever, says Jesus, to make that decision. Patience runs out if you don't know me. But if you build your life upon me, it's always there. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank and praise you that here we have the one who is perfect love, the Lord Jesus Christ, in love, warning us, warning those that generation in the first century that they would be rejected, that Israel would cease to be the people of God, there'd be a new people of God, the church, with new leaders, and they will be fruitful. But for us in the 21st century, to know that we need to trust in you, If we've not yet done that, would we see the patience of God while he waits for us, but also recognize that that patience will end? But then, Father, secondly, for those of us who know you, who see Jesus Christ exalted as the capstone, and it is marvelous in our eyes, would we know that your patience is unending? And knowing that, would we be those who bear fruit for you, we ask?